The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to open in prayer. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word. We thank You that You have told us exactly how everything is. We have the absolute, inerrant Word to guide and direct our thinking. Father, You have told us not only about our condition as sinners, our need for grace, our need for salvation, but You have given us the most remarkable spiritual life. And in Your grace, You have recognized that as sinners, we will continue to sin And you have given us a grace recovery procedure. And that when we use that, we return in fellowship to you. But we can continue to walk by the Spirit and abide with you. Now, fathers, we continue our study of these crucial doctrines for our spiritual life. We pray that you'd help us to understand them. And that they might challenge us as we continue to move forward in our spiritual growth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Now, I have been a pastor, or been in professional Christian ministry for almost 25 years. And I have been in the pastoral ministry for almost 20 years. And over that course of time, aside from perhaps eternal security, the questions that I have discovered, or that I'm asked more frequently than any other would also include the whole topic of confession of sin. Do we need to confess sin or not? What's involved in confession of sin? And the whole aspect of fellowship, just exactly what fellowship is. What does it mean to abide in Christ, walking by the Holy Spirit? What is the role of God the Holy Spirit in the believer's life? And what are the mechanics? How does that function? And I think these all relate to one another. Because in the lives of most believers, there is a concern for post-salvation sin. What do we do about sin after we are saved? And that is a bother to many people. Some go to one extreme and say, well, if you continue to sin or if you commit certain sins, then you lose your salvation. And that is the loss of eternal security. And that's one extreme. And that is an extreme that is not supported by the Scriptures. The other extreme is that if you continue to sin in certain ways or commit certain sins, then you really weren't saved in the first place. That is sort of the back door flip side of the first position. They just don't want to say you lost your salvation. You just weren't really saved to begin with. 
And so this is the problem. What do we do with post-salvation sins? Now, I don't want you to think that I'm just beating this horse to death, but this is the background of these first two chapters in John. The whole subject of our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we enjoy it? How do we have it? How do we maintain it? And what is its purpose? We have seen in our study of the first chapter that in the first chapter the issue is the importance of maintaining fellowship and confessing sin in order to recover fellowship for the believer's life. But in 1 John 2.3, John steps up the subject matter a little bit. He shifts gears. He, he moves us from first gear to second gear. He moves us from those entry practices of the baby believer to what's involved in advancing to spiritual maturity. 1 John 1.5 down through 1 John 2.11 is his introduction to this epistle. So let's review briefly. Before we get into verse 6 this morning, we need to keep the context going. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this should be translated, and by this. The introductory chi in the Greek is not found in New American Standard English. But nevertheless, it's there in the original text and shows it is uh, connected to the previous verse. He is continuing the same discussion. And by this, we have studied this by this, and we, we are aware of the fact that this is a favorite phrase of the Apostle John, and it can refer to that which is following or that which went before. If it refers to that which is before, it's called an anaphoric use of the word or the phrase, anaphoric. Write these up on the overhead for you so you can spell them correctly. Anaphoric. If it re- I'll put an arrow like that. It refers to that which precedes. The second term is cataphoric. Cataphoric refers to that which uh, comes after. What we have in 2.3 is a cataphoric use of the phrase, by this. And in 2.5, at the end of 2.5, we have an anaphoric use. And this is evident from the syntax that follows the use of the uh, term by this. And so we, we see that John, in fine, brilliant literary style, frames a point by the use of this phrase in the Greek in tuto. By this we know, and then at the end of verse 5, By this we know. And the point is that he is developing a stair-step approach to pedagogy. This is brilliant. Isaiah mentioned this. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. We learn in stages. He starts off focusing on one subject. And that subject in the first chapter is fellowship. And in the first chapter he then talks about fellowship and he connects it to the idea of walking, walking in the light. And the whole metaphor of walking introduces the concept of lifestyle or lifestyle or living. Walking is the life of, of, the, of the believer. And then and he goes on, and in this chapter, he introduces a, another concept that builds on this, and that is the idea of knowing God. The idea of knowing God. And we studied that in detail 
And we saw that there are various options that are suggested for the meaning of knowing God, that it doesn't mean just an academic knowledge or awareness that God exists or there might be a God. It's not an academic knowledge of certain things about God. You pick up a systematic theology book and you read certain attributes. Know that God's sovereign, righteous, just, love, eternal life, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, veracity, immutability, or that He exists as a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's just academic knowledge. That's not what we're talking about here. Second option was saving knowledge. And we saw that it's not saving knowledge, and that was based on the Greek of the passage. Now by this, the text says, we know, that is a present tense, that we know Him, and are better in the New American Standard, have come to know Him. It's a perfect tense there. The first know is present tense. By this we know that we can habitually know something. We know something that we have come to know Him. An action in the past, emphasizing present reality, that we have reached a stage in the spiritual life where we know God. Now, this is not true of the baby believer. The baby believer may know a few things about God, but the baby believer does not necessarily know God. You may, if you remember back to the days when you were dating, some of you that's far away, some not so far away, some of you are hoping to date someday. But you're interested in some other person and um, you find out some things. Who is that person? What do they like? Do they like me? You start asking those kinds of questions. Now you know facts about that person, but that doesn't mean you know that person. As a baby believer, we know certain facts about God. We know that He loved us, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we know that if we, that, that God loves us, we know He's just, He's right, righteous, but we don't know Him, because to know Him we have to be able to understand the Scriptures. We have to spend some time in the Word. And this is what uh, takes place. To know somebody... You have to learn things about them and you have to spend time with them. So it's not something that is available to the brand new baby believer. And only as the believer spends time in the Word, learns doctrine, assimilates doctrine, goes through that growth process, that he comes to know God. So what we see here in First John 2.3 is the principle of knowing God. And secondly, the perfect tense usage of this perfect active indicative here of we know Him paralleled in the same kind of construction in first John, I mean in the Gospel of John in chapter 14. And there we saw that Jesus used this same type of construction when he was talking to the disciples and then he singled out Peter and he says that, that you, you do not know me. I mean not talking to Peter but talking to Philip and said, but you don't know me, Philip. Philip, how long have you been with me but you don't know me? And the point there is that Philip was a believer, but he had not come to a real personal, intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ yet. That's a result of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and Philip wasn't there yet. But he was a believer. So you can be saved and not know God. You can be saved and not have that more advanced relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at verse 3, we said that by this, we're going to have a test. We're going to have a way of self-evaluation to see if we have advanced to spiritual uh, maturity. By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Keeping His commandments is observing the mandates. I related that back. It's the same verb, tereo, for keep, means to observe, means to hold in honor, means to guard, 
and it means to obey. And it's the same word that is used in the uh, <clears throat> Great Commission when Jesus told the disciples that when you are going, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe. There's the word. To observe is another way to re- oh, it's translated. To observe all that I commanded you. So that's part of the apostolic mandate is to teach believers to be obedient to the mandates of the Scriptures. So we are to be obedient to the mandates and observe the prohibitions of Scripture. That's not legalism. Too often people get the idea that if you come along and say you can't do this, you should do this as a believer, that that's legalism. That's not legalism. If that were legalism, then Moses was a legalist and, and, and Israel was legalistic under the Mosaic Law. They did not become legalistic until after the exile. What legalism does is it takes the obedience to the mandates and prohibitions of God and says that's the basis for blessing. So you can have a believer who is serious about advancing, who is serious about his relationship to God, and is very careful in the way he observes the principles and uh, protocols of Scripture. And you can have another person who is observing those same principles and protocols, but they're doing it to, to gain God's favor. They're doing it to get blessing. They're doing it to either get saved, to stay saved, or to uh, get blessing from God. One person's doing it as a response to the grace he's already received, and he's advancing. The other person looks the same thing, does the same thing, but he's doing it to get blessing from God, and he's dead in his tracks, probably in legalistic reversionism. So that's the difference. Legalism is not saying certain things ought to be done, ought to be followed, ought to be applied, and that these are absolutes. It is saying that the obedience to those absolutes is the basis for divine blessing. We get our blessing not because of who and what we are, but because of the fact that we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God the Father is perfect righteousness and absolute justice. Man was created, but after the fall he sinned, and he is minus R. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, all of our sins were imputed to Him on the cross, so that He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Consequently, that the righteousness of God might be found in us, so that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is then imputed to the believer. So that when God the Father looks at us, He sees not our sin, but the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God demands absolute perfection for fellowship, absolute perfection for blessing, because the righteousness of God sees the perfect righteousness of Christ in us, the justice of God is now free to bless us. And so all blessing, whether it is logistical grace blessing or whether it is advanced grace blessing, all blessing in the believer's life is based on the possession of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, not what we do. But what we do develops capacity righteousness. And if we don't have capacity, then God's not going to distribute to us the advanced grace blessings that He has already decided to give us. He's just not going to distribute them. And if He doesn't distribute them and we stay babies, we'll just never experience them. They're ours, but we'll never get them. So we have to advance to to spiritual maturity, and we do that through abiding in Christ, which is going to be characterized by obedience to mandates. We don't get blessed because we do it, but we are blessed because of the possession of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this is not legalism. John says, By this we know that we know Him. This is a test. Self-evaluation, objectivity in the life of the believer. How do you know if you've reached a level of maturity where you know 
The Lord, you keep His commandments. You observe them. They are they characterize your life. Now that's a present tense. Tereo there is a present tense, and that is a customary present tense with an what's called an iterative sense. Now all that grammar aside, what that basically means is that a customary present describes events that occur regularly. And in the iterative idea, emphasizes the fact that it's a repeated action with periodic interruptions. Now, that's exactly what happens in the believer's life. We're obedient, we're obedient, then we sin. We confess our sin, we're back in fellowship. We're obedient, we're obedient, we're obedient. Then we sin. We confess our sin, we're back in fellowship. We're obedient, we're... You know, we're generally characterized, but that doesn't mean we're sinless. It doesn't mean you don't sin. But it does mean that you have this repeated, ongoing, general characteristic of applying the mandates of, of the Scriptures. Verse 4 then applies that to a person who makes a particular claim. He who claims... He who saves, I think, is best translated, he who makes a claim. They claim, I know him. I've reached spiritual maturity. I have a relationship with God. I've reached this level where I have, um, I'm, I'm entering into spiritual adulthood. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Just love the way John puts this. He just doesn't back off for anybody. He's not going to... Um, soft pedal it. He's not going to use some sort of euphemism to make it a little more palatable. He just comes right out and says that if you claim any level of spiritual maturity and your life is not characterized by a consistent obedience to Scripture, then you're a liar. You're self-deceived and you're deceiving others. You're in arrogance. And doctrine is not in you. That means two things. Number one, it's not operational. And number two, you're probably ignorant of it. There's no, what, fundamentally what it means is there is no relationship with doctrine. See, John uses this phrase, in him, in him, to indicate a relationship. We're going to see this in more detail later on, but Paul uses the phrase, in him and in Christ, to refer to a positional relationship. But John doesn't. This is a distinction in the authors in Scripture. You're going to have some real doctrinal problems if you think John's going to talk just like Paul. See, God uses different personalities. And under the doctrine of inspiration, God used the individual writing styles, personalities, backgrounds, education of each individual author so that what they wrote was, and he kept it free from error, so that what they wrote was absolute truth. But they're different. Just like pastors are different. One pastor has one personality. Another pastor has another personality. One pastor may have more education and may have certain natural gifts towards vocabulary usage and style than another pastor. Uh, One pastor may come from an urban environment and have a rich cultural background and education. Another pastor may come from a, a more rural area with a more limited education. But they still have the same gift, a pastor-teacher, and they're still able to communicate the Word of God and communicate it in a true manner. They just may have different styles, different personalities, different vocabularies, but they still communicate the truth. And the same thing was true with the writers of Scripture. John had a different vocabulary than Paul. He used, he used different technical words than Paul did. We're going to see one and spend some time studying one this morning. So when John says in him, he's indicating experiential relationship. 
So he's saying the truth is not in him, meaning that there is no experiential relationship with doctrine in the person whose life doesn't match the claim. Then we come to verse 5. But, contrast, whoever keeps his word, there we're back to our main statement, the application of the overriding principle in verse 3. Whoever keeps his word, it's a present active indicative of tereo. Here it is a customary iterative present, which indicates it's continuous, even though there may be breaks uh, in, during the application and periods of application of the doctrine. So he says, uh, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is matured. Teleao here, which means to bring to completion or to bring to maturity. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is brought to completion in him. Now, it's interesting to note here that over in John chapter 15, Jesus said, the one who loves me keeps my commandments, and my Father and I will disclose myself to him. So, even in John 15, this is a commentary on the upper room discourse. There, Jesus taught that, that God's going to give us a certain level of understanding. Now, if we don't respond positively to that and begin applying what He's given us, He's not going to give us any more. Think back to when you were a kid and your mother put a plate of food down in front of you. You might not have liked everything on that plate of food. You were focusing on that chocolate cake you had for dessert, so you just kind of pushed it around a little bit and acted like you were eating it. And your mother said, if you don't eat that, you're not going to get the cake. You've got to eat all your vegetables and put away everything on your plate before you're going to get dessert. Well, that, that, that's similar to what, how the Lord operates. He gives us a certain level of understanding, and if we don't accept that and apply that and assimilate that into our lives and grow to that level, then we're, He's not going to give us any more. There, there, there are stages to our, the development of our understanding of Scripture. And that's what this is emphasizing. Whoever keeps His Word, you keep what you understand, you're applying that, then God is going to mature you and you will advance. So this introduces a new concept, love of God. Now, in the Greek, you have a couple of different ways that this can be translated. It can be translated, it's a genitive construction, love of God. Whenever you see an of in English or an apostrophe as like God's love, that's when you have a genitive construction. It indicates some sort of relationship or possession. But this can be understood as either what's called a subjective genitive, love of for God, where God is, or, or excuse me, God's love, where it is talking about the love God has for us, or it could be understood as, a, as an objective genitive. See, the, the main word there is love. And love is a noun, but it describes an action. Now, a noun is, is not a verb. A verb is an action word. But this is a noun that describes an action. When you have a noun of action linked with a in a genitive construction, it can be understood in either one of these two ways. And the best way to understand this is as a, an objective genitive. It is love for God, not God's love for us, because God's love for us is always the same. It never increases, it never diminishes, it never changes. So if this was talking about God's love for us, and this would be saying that God's love for the individual believer would be incremental and would develop as the, on the basis of the believer's obedience. Well, that would just be works, and that would be completely wrong. So this, te- this must be understood as love for God, 
which is the uh, sixth stress buster, personal love for God the Father. Now, we go back. I'll try to restructure it here. We look at the development here in John's argument. John starts off, he talks about fellowship. Then he goes to walking. And he brings in the idea of walking in the light. And then he gets to the idea of knowing God. And then he builds on that the idea of personal love for God. We have to know God before we can love God. You can't love someone you don't know. A lot of people make that mistake, and after they get married, suddenly they realize what a terrible mistake they made, that they really didn't know the person they married. They thought they did. They were stimulated emotionally. They had a good time together, but they didn't, and they confused that with love. But that's not what love is. Love involves really knowing somebody, and too often people get married, and then they start learning about the other person. So John and John and First John two five introduces his concept, and he the next stage he says whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is brought to maturity in him. By this, by now this is the anaphoric use of in tuto. By this, by what I just told you, by this test we know that we are in him. Now he brings in the idea of being in him, having that, once again, in him is not positional, it is experiential fellowship. This is a technical term for John. We're going to look at it in detail before we're done. So we have these things all linked together. Fellowship, walking, knowing God, personal love for God, being in him. Where I'm going with this, is that too often we think about fellowship as being a static, a static concept. We're talking about being in fellowship. Are you in fellowship or out of fellowship? That's a static idea. We saw back in 1 John 1, 5 that when John spoke, he said, if you do this, well, let's turn back to it. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we've heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship, it's not... If we say we're in fellowship, it says if we have fellowship. The verb is echo, which means to have and to hold, to possess something, to enjoy something. Fellowship is not something that's simply static. When, when in, in a social situation, when we're talking about social fellowship among friends, it's not just being in one another's presence. We're doing things together. There, there's an enjoyment there. there. There's a mutual give and take. There is a relationship going on. It is an active concept, not merely a static concept. And nowhere in the Scripture does it use a phrase, in fellowship. We've just sort of developed that because of common usage. But the biblical concept is much more dynamic. And what we're going to see as we go through this study is that John uses a couple of different words to talk about what fellowship is. It's learning about God. It's developing this relationship. It's knowing God. He's going to introduce in the next verse, in verse chapter 2, verse 6, the concept of abiding in Him. Now, abiding is remaining. It means to stay. It means to be in a position. So often believers, especially new believers, are bouncing in and out of fellowship. You know, we sin and then we're in fellowship and we confess our sin and we're out of fellowship. It's back and forth, back and forth. But the emphasis in the word abide 
is not on just uh, on just being in fellowship. It's staying in fellowship. It's abiding. It's remaining there. I mean, that's where it happens in the spiritual life. If you're so busy bouncing in and out and in and out and in and out, you're not going anywhere. You're not spending enough time enjoying the fellowship of God for it to be of spiritual benefit in terms of advancing. And this is and Paul uses another word that is very similar, that is just as dynamic, and that's the phrase walking by means of the Spirit. Walking picks up the whole metaphor of putting one foot in front of the other, step by step, moment by moment dependence. It is therefore something that is an active concept. It is an advancing concept. When you're walking, you should be going somewhere, going in a particular direction, taking one step at a time. So you have these three concepts, having fellowship, abiding, and walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And by using these various synonyms from the different authors, what God the Holy Spirit is communicating to us is just different facets of this thing we call being in fellowship. So that's where we're going. Now, let's look at verse 6. Verse 6, he adds a principle to what he has already said. He steps it up. He's talked about knowing God. He's talked about loving God. And now he is going to pull in another key word to describe this active, ongoing, experiential relationship of the believer. Verse 6 begins, He who says. In the Greek, this is the same construction. It is a, an articular, present active participle of lego, meaning the one who says. And here it should be translated claims. Because the verb here, it's translated in New King James Version, is the one who says he abides. And I think it's translated the same way in the, Eng- in the New American Standard, the one who says he abides. He abides, if you look at this verb right here, abides is translated into an English uh, finite verb. It's not a finite verb in the Greek. It's an infinitive. And the infinitive, uh, the present active infinitive of menane from the Greek meno, M-E-N-O is familiar to many of you who went through the uh, John series with me. It means to stay, to remain, to abide. So this should, since it is a in the infinitive, it should be translated to remain or to abide, not as a finite verb. He abides because there's no subject here. So it is just simply a claim. The one who claims to abide in Him. So it's talking about someone who we talked a minute ago about the person who claimed to know Him. And now we're talking about the person who claims to abide. They're used as parallels. To claim to know Him and to claim to abide are synonymous ideas. The one who claims to abide in Him ought himself also to what? To walk as he also walked. Now, let's go back and look at this stair step that we've developed. As John is expanding his ideas, he starts off with fellowship in 1.4 and 1.5, goes to walking in 1.6, goes to knowing in chapter 2, 3, and 4, goes to personal love for God in verse 5, goes to in Him in verse 5, then he goes to abide in verse 6, and then he goes right back to what? Walking. 
you see the point I'm trying to make? Is that these are, are, are all related ideas. He's just coming at this thing. He's using every word in his vocabulary in order to encompass the idea of our personal walk and relationship with Jesus Christ on a day-to-day basis. And, if, and what I want to do as we go through this is, is build this in terms of John's vocabulary and Paul's vocabulary to develop the doctrine of what it means to abide or walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one thing I want us to note is that back in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1, there are three things that John emphasized. First of all, claiming to know God is parallel to walking in the light. That's what we see in verse 4. He who says, I know Him, he who makes the claim to know Him, and doesn't keep His commandments is a liar. Well, back in verse 6 of chapter 1, John said, If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. So there is a connection. The person who lies and doesn't practice the truth in in one six is claiming to have fellowship, and the person who claims to know him in verse four is a liar and doctrine's not in him. Same thing. So that means that knowing God and fellowship are are correlated items in this passage. This is so important to put this together. Second, not that, the second thing this implies is that not keeping commandments, the emphasis of two, three through six, not keeping commandments is parallel then to walking in darkness back in one six. And that would mean that keeping commandments is parallel to walking in the light. And that gives us a conclusion, therefore, that enjoying fellowship and walking in the light develop our knowledge of God and the barometer, the self-test, is our obedience to divine mandates. Now let's look at what we have here in verse 6. It starts off, the one who says he abides in him. Now abide is a significant word and has become a major battlefield in the whole area of understanding salvation in the spiritual life. Why is that? It is because there are those who want to take 1 John, as well as the well-known passage in John 15, as relating to believer versus unbeliever. How do you know if you're a believer? You abide, you keep His commandments. If you don't abide, you don't keep His commandments, you're not a believer. And so for those folks... Abiding becomes a functional equivalent or semantic equivalent to the word believe. Now we have to find out, does abide, is abide a synonym for believe or does it mean something else? And this is so important. First of all, in English, the word abide means, one, to put up with or tolerate. We're going to just abide somebody. Well, that doesn't fit the context here at all. It means, secondly, to wait patiently for something. Third, to be in store for or to await something. Fourth, to withstand. In an intransitive sense, it means to remain in a place. And that's close to our Greek meaning in minnow, is to stay in one place. But what I want you to note is looking at these meanings, the transitive meanings and the three intransitive meanings, to remain in a place, to continue, 
to be sure or firm, to endure. Third, to dwell or sojourn. That none of those meanings listed here in the dictionary are what any of us would think of as synonyms for believe. If you look, abide up, the English word abide up in a thesaurus to find its synonyms, you're not going to find believe listed as a synonym for, for abide. So that tells us right away that, that if, if this means believe, that somebody's got some real problems. Furthermore, we have to look at some passages to see how Jesus uses the word. What's interesting is that the word minnow, abide, is used 118 times in the New Testament. For those of you who like statistics, this is fascinating. Fifty of those 118 usages are by the Apostle John. That's 42% of the uses of minnow. That tells us something just by emphasis. One of the, one of the laws of Bible study is proportion. I mean, if God tells you three things in five verses, then you ought to pay attention to it. I mean, if He tells you the same three things within five verses. There's repetition. There's proportion there. We saw the law of proportion this morning in Judges. You go through Judges 1, 2, 3, all the way down through 8, and all of a sudden you come to 9, and you've got 57 verses on the tyranny of Abimelech. Why does the writer slow down so much and give such excessive detail to Abimelech? He wants us to pay attention to something. Well, that's the law of proportion. There's a disproportionate amount of information given to Abimelech than to some, many of the other judges who really had their act together. And he wasn't a judge. So why is there so little information given about others and why so much there? That's the law of proportion. So you look at this and you see that John uses the word minnow 42% of the time. Of the 50 times that John uses the word minnow, 25 of them, half of, the, half of them are in 1 John. Now, if John is going to use the word minnow or to abide 50 times in the Gospel of John, do you think it's an important doctrine in John? He's going to be beating us over the head with this throughout most of this epistle. This is a major theme. And that shows us that the main idea is fellowship introduced back in 1.4 and 1.5, that abiding is a critical aspect to the whole concept of abiding. Well, furthermore, if abide means believe, then it ought to, we ought to be able to somehow substitute um, those two words, and that doesn't work. Well, let's just look at one passage. John chapter 6, verse 56. Jesus is teaching and He says, He who eats my flesh... It's, I didn't even think about the fact as we got into this that this was Communion Sunday. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides, present tense, present active indicative. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Well, what is the meaning of that? Sometimes we take that as to indicate accepting Christ. Well, if that's accepting Christ, then abiding equals believing. We better do some homework. First of all, eating and drinking are non-meritorious acts that anyone can perform. Believing is something that anyone can perform. And if it's not believing, then that means that abiding is going to be something, or fellowship is going to be something anyone can perform. And once again, we're driven to the fact that the spiritual life in the church age is based on grace and not works. It's based on anyone can do this. It's non-meritorious. Anybody can perform this action. Point number two. 
Eating and drinking mean to accept something, to appropriate something, to make it part of your system. When you eat and you swallow and it goes down your esophagus into your stomach, your automatic reflexes take over. You secrete a number of different enzymes that begin to break down the food and begin to assimilate it through your bloodstream to your, all the cells in your, in your brain and in your muscular system so that it becomes usable. So it emphasizes, once again, grace. You don't think about that. It's something that automatically happens. So eating and drinking mean to accept something, to appropriate something. In the initial act of salvation, it would refer to the initial act of accepting Christ as Savior, at which time we are instantly in fellowship with Him as a result. But in post-salvation spiritual life, it describes spiritual nourishment, the feeding on the Word of God. Eating and drinking refers to spiritual, ongoing spiritual nourishment, feeding on the doctrines of Christ. That leads us to point three. Eating and drinking in verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, are present active participles. Present active participles describe ongoing action. It's not talking about a one-shot thing. If it was talking about salvation, it would not be expressed as a present participle. It would probably be expressed as an aorist uh, verb in some other construction. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood expresses ongoing action. But the verb meno is a present active indicative. In verse 56, John 6.56 it says, He who go, continually eats my flesh and continually drinks my blood abides, present active, continual action there. And that indicates the characteristic of that believer. The believer who is continually feeding on the doctrines of the Word stays in fellowship with me and I in Him. John 6.53, furthermore, three verses prior to the one we're looking at, states that eating in, in that verse, eating and drinking are aorist active subjunctives. Aorist active subjunctives. What's the difference? An aorist active subjunctive focuses on an event. An event. A present active participle is going to focus on a continuing process. So they're different. John 6.53 states, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat one time the flesh of the Son of Man and drink one time, heirs tense, his blood, you have no life in yourself. Their eating and drinking refers to accepting Christ as Savior. Based on the tense, it's an aorist subjunctive, not a present active participle. So in John 6.56, when it talks about he who eating, continues to eat my flesh and drinking my blood, it's not talking about faith, initial faith receptance of Christ. It's talking about ongoing eating, post-salvation experience, where you have fellowship with Christ. Therefore, John, point number five, John 6.56, uses present active participles to indicate continuous action. Whoever, let's paraphrase it, Whoever continues to be nourished by me stays in close relationship to me. So if you stop being nourished by the Word, what Jesus is saying is it's not going to be long before you sin. You're going to be out of fellowship. You're not going to be abiding with me. Point number six. Conclusion. If eating and drinking are the metaphor describing belief, then 
then what we have to say in these verses is that minnow must mean something beyond initial saving faith. Conclusion? Faith cannot be equated to abide or remain. The bottom line here that I am saying is that it is, does not make sense on syntactical grounds. I'm not even talking about word meaning. Just on syntactical grounds for abide to be understood as something related to initial saving faith. Point number seven. Even though someone believes in Christ and currently maintains a close relationship with Him, the potential remains. That's why it's a subjunctive. The potential remains to discontinue fellowship. If true belief prevented breaking fellowship, there would be no need to command them to abide. The point is that if someone believes in Christ then they would be saved. They would not have to be commanded to abide after initial saving faith. So the fact that believers are commanded to abide in Christ indicates that it is a post-salvation experience and not something that happened at salvation. Furthermore, a believer remains or abides in Christ's love by obeying the mandates. John 15, 9 through 10. A believer remains in Christ's love by obeying commandments. So John 15, 9 and 10 is going to connect obeying commandments to uh, abiding in Christ. Staying in fellowship. You stop obeying commandments, you're not abiding, you're out of fellowship. Verse 9 then, furthermore, if abide means to believe, then Jesus' statement in John 15, 5 would mean... That's in John 15, 5. He says, If you abide in Me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. If abide means believe, then that would have to be translated. If you believe in Me and I believe in you, you will bear much fruit. That's an absurd statement for why would Jesus need to believe in us? See, just do simple word substitution and you'll discover that abide cannot mean believe. And yet, this is one of the major planks for lordship salvation. And the bottom line to Lordship Salvation is if there's no fruit, there's no faith. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says fruit comes after long-term abiding. So what are the conditions then for fellowship with Christ? What are the conditions for fellowship with Christ? Well, we're about out of time, so we'll come back and start with that next time. And we're going to move from the conditions for fellowship in Christ to then developing out in a more detailed way that stair-step analogy we saw or the stair-step illustration with these various words, because when we go into John's, gospel, John's epistle, this first epistle, and we look at the other verses where John uses abide, what I'm going to show you is each of those verses relates back at some level to verses we've already covered in 1 John 1 and the first part of 1 John 2, and it's going to open up the dynamics of spiritual growth in a way that uh, is similar to what we've seen before, but it's just a new way of approaching it that is uh, fascinating. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this time we've had together to study Your Word. We pray that You would take the things that we have studied and You would challenge us with them, that we would realize that it's not just a matter of being in fellowship, but of walking by the Spirit, of advancing in our spiritual growth. It's a matter of abiding, staying, remaining in fellowship with You. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal life, unsure of their salvation, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that certain and sure. It's not based on uh, church membership. It's not based on the goodness of one's life. It's not based on moral reformation or making any bargain with God. It's based simply and solely on faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There He died as our spiritual substitute, paying the penalty in full. Before He died physically, He said, It is finished. Nothing can be added to His work on the cross. We simply receive it or accept it as ours by faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would take the things that we have studied and that you would help us to understand them clearly and see how they relate to our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.